Welcome to the Emerald City Sportscast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, analysis, and opinions from Dan and his guests on the Mariners, Seahawks, Kraken, and more. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to the first weekend of NFL football. Uh, hopefully, all of you enjoyed that game last night. Dallas and Tampa went down to the last second. Predictable ending. Tom Brady does it again. Um, I think he said one time he might play until he's 50. I think he might be right. You know, he's like that. He's like that pitcher in baseball that relies more on uh, guile than pure raw stuff, and he can play into his later years. Perfect situation for him in Tampa, and they certainly look like the NFC favorite. Um, and a team that the Seahawks will be chasing. We're going to talk Seahawks today. We're going to talk Mariners. And I'm finally, on the record, going to give you my thoughts on what's happening over in Pullman with their head football coach um, coming off of last weekend. Uh, And a lot of Husky fans that I know are in Michigan right now as we speak. The Huskies coming off what some people are saying is their worst loss in program history. Um to Montana last week and now having to go to the big house in Michigan in front of 100,000 plus Wolverine fans and play that team on the road. It'll be interesting uh, to see how Jimmy Lake gets that team to bounce back this week and and could really be telling as far as his legacy and his tenure there at Montlake is concerned. Um, Again, happy Friday. Um, I want to start with this. I, I just... I really hope you're all doing well. And (laughs) there's so much negative crap around us these days. It's everywhere. No matter where you look, even when you try to avoid it, it's, uh, it's hard to, especially if you're on social media, which if you're watching the show right now or listening to the podcast, you probably are. You have to actively try to avoid it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to keep yourself informed. And so it's hard. It's hard to get away from that stuff. But I had a moment earlier today. And if you follow me on Facebook, uh, you might have seen the post. I, just a random song I was listening to on a playlist came up. And it was a song about hope and positivity. It was a journey song called City of Hope. And it was just all about being positive no matter what. And and just kind of making that part of your being and who you are. And And if you do, then you're more equipped to deal with the negativity because you don't have to contrive optimism. Um, Those who know me know I'm a positive, optimistic person, no matter what's going on around me, no matter what adversity I might face. Um, It's proven to work for me time and time again, and I've had to use it time and time again, including recently. Um, But there's so much going on the last year and a half, I I lose sight of it. And I kind of had forgotten, and and, and that song kind of snapped me back into it, you know, and and the specific example, to tie it into sports, which is what I use this platform for. Um, When when it was announced last week, uh, the Seahawks were the first to announce it, and then all the teams kind of came out and did. As a season ticket holder, I got a direct email about it, uh, that masks were going to be required now at the football games. And, And it was like a gut punch. It really, really hit me right in the gut and right in the heart. Um, (laughs) My boss is texting me. How do I turn those notifications off? Okay. Um, (laughs) So you may hear a couple more dings because I'm not going to bother to try and turn that off right now. Um, Where was I? 
anyway, I was, I was super bummed. My initial reaction was, and I posted it again. If you follow me on Facebook, you might have read it. I don't want to go to the games, and I'll sell my tickets and pocket the money and wait until I can go back again without my mask on and really enjoy the experience and yell and scream. And uh, it was kind of late at night when I saw that news, went to bed. And because it, it has been hard it, in my job, communication, interpersonal communication, face to face with people is a big part of what I do. And we got to experience life at work without masks in June um, for those of us that are vaccinated. And that was fantastic. Breath of fresh air. It was like <laughs> kind of being reborn in a way. And then we had to put them back on again. That was hard. It was even harder than the first time, I think, because we got to experience again what it was like after over a year of not um, getting to experience that. And so now having to do it again at the football games just, just really hit me. Uh, but I slept on it, woke up the next day, and, and that moment I had this morning and hearing this song again kind of further amplified um, what I was feeling the next day. And that is, you know, it's a minor inconvenience for the, for the greater good. And I'm not going to let it stop me from going and doing one of the things on this planet that I enjoy doing more than anything else. You know, I referred to that stadium as my happy place this morning. It really is. Like, I still, every single time, I don't care who they're playing, I get goosebumps when I walk in there. Same with T-Mobile Park. Uh, even driving by the stadiums kind of gives me a rush. So I'm not going to avoid that just because I'm a little irritated that I have to wear a mask. Um, I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to watch the Seahawks uh, next Sunday against the Titans in their home opener. Uh, taking my buddy Steven with me, we're going to have a good time. And I'm not going to let that get me down. So it just, you know, hope you're doing well and hope whatever it is that's your trigger um, that makes you go to that place where you feel negative, bummed and pessimistic and, and not hopeful. Hopefully you have the tools in place to snap yourself out of it. Uh, and maybe check that song out, whether it's your thing or not. It's a, it's a, it's a cool song, and it's called City of Hope by Journey, and uh, one, of the, one of the little underrated gems of the Arnel Pineda era. Uh, it leads off the Eclipse album, I believe. Uh, great guitar work by Neil Sean. A little side note there for you music fans. Anyway, let's get back into uh, what this show is all about. We're going to talk Mariners in a little bit. Just down the road from me at T-Mobile Park, they open up tonight one of their most important homestands in years. And I didn't take the time to go back and look at maybe when the last homestand was that compared. But at the very least, it was 2018, right? Before, at the end of 2018, they decided to tear down and do the rebuild. The Arizona Diamondbacks come in tonight for three-game set, and then the Boston Red Sox Monday through Wednesday We'll get to that in a minute, but we have to talk football. The Seahawks open up this Sunday at Indianapolis against the Colts. It's an interesting matchup. It's not a common matchup for the Seahawks. They haven't played the Colts much over the years. Colts are a good football team. Uh, let's just take a little look at that. It, their fourth year under Frank Reich came over from the Eagles after they won the Super Bowl. He was their offensive coordinator. 11-5 uh, and five last year. Lost in the wild card round of the Bills. If you remember that game, it was a thriller. They had a chance to win that game. Bills pulled it out. Um, last year was the Phillips Rivers year. They were hoping to get lightning in a bottle, get one more good year out of him. It's a really good roster. 
mostly stocked with their own draft picks. Since Chris Ballard arrived five years ago, I, I've just the Colts are one of those teams that when the draft is over every year, I always look at their stockpile and go, man, there's a lot of names on there that were guys I was looking at as fits for the Seahawks. Players that I liked that I wanted us to draft that would have fit with us. Uh, he's very similar to John Schneider in the way he manipulates the draft board, moving up, moving down, the way he values draft capital. Um, it's a really good roster, but one with some significant question marks. Um, and in that way, maybe similar, very similar to the Seahawks, which is what makes this, this matchup so intriguing. Uh, their biggest question marks are on the offensive line. Ironically, uh, that's not as much of a question mark for the Seahawks going into the season. We'll touch on that in a second. But especially on the left side, left tackle is going to be Julian Davenport. Mixed results, uh, poor pro football focus grades the last couple of years playing for a couple of different teams, sort of a journeyman. Um, he's going to go because the Colts are really banking on Eric Fisher getting healthy at some point this year and getting back to his previous level, former top Five pick in the NFL draft, former franchise left tackle for the Chiefs, tore his Achilles tendon, if you remember, in the playoffs last year. I think it was in the AFC Championship game. Um, and so not even a calendar year. And these days, while guys come back from ACLs in less than a calendar year, Marquise Blair is an example. Saquon Barkley is an example. Don't know if he's going to play week one, but he's close. Achilles tend to take closer to 18 months. So for Eric Fisher to even be close to where they think he's going to play, I heard one of their one of the guys that covers the Colts refer to it uh, just recently as they expect him to play in September. He's not going to go on Sunday. Um, Quentin Nelson might not either. They're beast of a guard, maybe the best guard in football when he's healthy, but he's been racked with injuries. Three surgeries. Over the last 18 months, I think, including the same one Carson Wentz had where he had to have a bone removed from his foot. Um, he practiced yesterday on a limited basis, but it sounds like, again, gleaning from what I'm hearing from from, from guys who cover the Colts, it's, it's highly doubtful he'll play. So the Colts could be without their entire starting left offensive line. Uh, Ryan Kelly at center, our old friend Mark Lewinsky at right guard, and Braden Smith at right tackle is an outstanding combination. But the, the left side could be something the Seahawks could exploit with their, uh, with their pass rush. Um, the Colts are young on defense for the most part. I mean, they traded for DeForest Buckner before last year. He's a beast on the inside. That's going to be a matchup, obviously, to watch. Kyle Fuller's going to get the start at center over Ethan Posick, who never really came back from his injuries in camp in time to really push Fuller for that starting job. Um, you know, obviously he's going to get help from the guards, Damian Lewis. Gabe Jackson is going to be our first look, really uh, extended look at Gabe Jackson when the bullets are flying. So that'll that'll clearly be a matchup to watch on that side. And then, of course, Darius Leonard, uh, the great young linebacker they have. He flies all over and makes plays all over the field. And they have some interesting guys in their pass rush, too. Uh, Kamoko Ture, Ben Bonogu, it was a guy that we all talked about as a Seahawk target potentially a couple years ago in the draft. And then Quiddy Pay, who they took in the first round this year out of Michigan, has reportedly looked good in training camp, but admittedly not against the ones, not against other team starters. Um, so hard to tell how rookie defensive linemen are going to make an impact um, early on. Uh, they've got uh, some other injuries 
Uh, Xavier Rhodes has not, has not been practicing, one of their best cover guys. Um, that could be something that Russell Wilson could exploit. So interesting, the matchup of our offense versus their defense. And, and that could really be the name of the game. Obviously, there's interesting storylines as far as our defensive makeup. And we'll talk about cornerbacks in a second. But I think I think the key to this game is our offense against their defense because there's so many unknowns. We just it's so it's one of the reasons I don't gamble. I don't bet. I do a weekly pool where I pick games, but that's it. Uh we don't know. We don't know how the Colts have some nice, interesting pieces on defense. But we don't know what it's gonna look like. And the Seahawks have some things we're really excited about on offense, weapons, rebuilt offensive line the tight end group, and that new system, right? Which we haven't fully seen. We saw hints of it in the last preseason game. Some cool hints, some really positive signs with Geno Smith running the offense. But we don't know how that's going to work against a team on the road with a bunch of young talent we haven't really seen for an extended period. Um, I, I, I sense... We may be catching the Colts at a good time. Pete Carroll doesn't have a great record as Seahawks coach uh, with road openers. I think he's only won two. Um, and but I think they're catching them at a good time for a couple of reasons. Number one, we just talked about the offense. The Colts are the first team to face the Seahawks at full strength when their when their offense is going to be fully unveiled. Pete Carroll even admitted they they specifically kept most of that offense under wraps during the preseason. Didn't want to show their opponents how Shane Waldron's going to call a game. All of the motion packages, all the formations. Um, so the Colts don't know how to game plan for that. Remember when the Seahawks opened against the Bengals a couple of years ago? And brand new head coach, new system. He'd never been a head coach in the NFL before, they played such a conservative, vanilla defense that day at uh, what was then Quest Field um, that the game got scary because they just played so conservative. They didn't know how to game plan for that offense. Colts are in a similar dilemma. They can kind of glean, they can assume, they can make some assumptions. Maybe Shane Waldron's going to take some of this. So maybe they're studying Rams tape too. Um. And they haven't seen all the personnel together, obviously, on the field at the same time. They haven't seen what this offensive line is going to look like with Dwayne Brown and Gabe Jackson and Damian Lewis, right? They haven't seen what this offense is going to look like with Chris Carson because he didn't touch the ball in the preseason. They haven't seen Russell Wilson operate this offense. Um, so that part's interesting. Also, the Carson-Wentz factor. He had the one year, his second year in the league, I think, where he was an MVP candidate. He was tearing the league apart. They came to Quest Field. The Seahawks beat him. It was a huge win. I think it was on Monday Night Football, or it might have been a Sunday night game. Um, and then the wheels kind of fell off for him to the point where eventually he was pushed out of Philadelphia in favor of Jalen Hurts. So he goes to Indianapolis where he's reunited with Frank Reich, who was his quarterback coach, offensive coordinator in Philly. And then he gets hurt. So we don't know. He's going to play Sunday. He's been practicing. He had that surgery where he had a bone removed from his foot, and the, and the prognosis at the time was somewhere between 5 and 12 weeks, which is an odd prognosis. But obviously, he's out there practicing. He's going to play. Um, 
Carson Wentz scare any of you? Probably not, because we have memories of him as an eagle matching up against us. His record's 0-5. He's never beaten the Seahawks. And he's played really poorly. First game with the Colts. First game with a new offense. You know, maybe there will be some, some things that the Seahawks aren't prepared for that they haven't seen. Maybe Frank Reich will unlock something in him. He certainly is talented. The questions about him in Philadelphia were mechanical issues, his throwing platform, which led to some inconsistencies and interceptions, his decision-making. Maybe those are things that Frank Reich will be better than Doug Peterson was at scheming around. Because they do have Jonathan Taylor. (laughs) And Jonathan Taylor, uh, and I know this well because I had him in two fantasy leagues last year, and I was banking on him. And he didn't do anything the first half of the season. And then he was one of the best running backs in the league the second half of the season. Consistent, dynamic, uh, great runner between the tackles, uh, power-speed combination, can catch the ball. Um, you know, having Nelson out and, and Fisher not ready might mitigate some of that, but we're going to find out right away how the Seahawks' run defense is facing Jonathan Taylor. Um, and if they can't stop that, then Carson Wentz might not have to be great on Sunday. Um, Seahawks are pretty healthy. Rashad Penny limited with a calf. Shocker. Sidney Jones limited with a groin. And seeing as how he was just acquired two weeks ago, I would expect him to be inactive. So I said we'd talk about the cornerbacks. This obviously is what people are freaking out about. And for good reason. You go into camp this year, and it looked like they had done a decent job of trying to piece that position together with some veterans. We knew DJ Reed was going to play the right side. Trey Flowers is going to kind of be a third corner. And I think we were all okay with that. They signed Akello Witherspoon. I almost said Reese. That'd be a good thing to refer to him as if he gets burned, right, uh, in Pittsburgh. But we signed him to be the starter. He was a scheme fit, came from Robert Sala's defense in San Francisco, long and lanky, kind of fit that Richard Sherman mold, learned from Sherman. He had a terrible training camp, just didn't fit, and so they traded him to Pittsburgh. Then they acquired Sidney Jones. Then they acquired John Reed. Then they acquired Bless Austin last week. Uh, they re-signed Gavin Heslop to the practice squad. But at the beginning of camp, it was Witherspoon, Pierre Desir, Demarius Randall, veterans. Those guys are all gone. Randall and Desir cut. And and it, it, it speaks to how unhappy they were with Randall's performance in training camp because even with all of these injuries and question marks, you would think that he's still out there. He'd be a guy that they could bring back on the practice squad, elevate him on game day, and he could give you a veteran presence as some depth. Because right now, because remember, they also acquired Nigel Warrior, a guy that was playing safety for the Ravens, who they're transitioning to corner, feel very good about. They really like his talent, but he's on the injured reserve to start the season. He'll miss three games. So going into Sunday, we're talking about DJ Reed, who's full practice participant, so he's healthy. He'd been nicked up, hasn't played a lot this preseason. He's going to play the left side. And then Trey Flowers is going to play the right side. People are freaking out about Trey Flowers. I'll make two points about that one. Number one, it's his fourth season. You would expect him to get better. He's shown signs over the last couple of years that he has improved. Played much better last year for the most part when he had his opportunities. And we've seen flashes from him. It's just we're all so damaged from the flashbacks of him trying to 
cover Devontae Adams in the Green Bay playoff game two years ago. He was terrible in that game. He was left on an island. Part of that was scheme. Part of that was coaching decisions. And one of the best quarterbacks ever to play it, one of the best receivers of our generation, exploited him. Um, but behind that, this is where it gets scary. You can debate all you want whether Trey Flowers, you know, how good our defense can be with him as the starter or not. But behind him right now, literally, John Reed is the backup. Bless Austin's healthy, but he's been in the building for a week. Um, even though there is some scheme familiarity with him, he was exposed, obviously, with Robert Sala taking over the head coaching job in New York, so he went through an offseason and training camp in a similar scheme, similar technique. Um, I would expect that on game day, unless there's something else out there that I've missed, that Heslop will be activated and brought up to give him another healthy corner. Otherwise, maybe Marquise Blair could move out there in a pinch. Maybe Ugo Amadi, maybe he could play matchup. Um, the Colts aren't blessed with a, with a really dominant, imposing group of wide receivers, Zach Pascal, and then a bunch of young guys. Um, um, but that's it. maybe that's what they're banking on. They're also banking on that pass rush. For the first time since 2015, we can sit here before a Seahawks opener and talk about how good we feel about their pass rush. And it's not just one or two guys. It's it's like in hockey terms, it's two or three lines of guys and some really cool matchups and seven or eight guys that can make an impact inside and outside to the point that the Seahawks release. This is interesting. Chris Clough brought this to my attention, posted it on Twitter yesterday. The Seahawks released their official depth chart. And they have Carlos Dunlap listed as the third string. I can't remember now if it was the Leo or the five technique. Third string. Their best defensive end, their, their most highly paid defensive end. Guy who has what, 80 something sacks in his career, decorated career. Um, it's funny because a couple of months ago, if you've ever checked out the, the website R Lads, which you should, they do a great job with some analytics and, and statistics. And they do a they project depth charts and they do it during the offseason. Every time a move is made, they update it. And I checked it out once and they had Dunlap as their third defensive end. And, and I sent, I think it was a DM, or did I just reply to him? Dan Shanka, who runs that site, said, are you sure about this? And he came back and said, hey, this is based on intel that we're getting from team sources. Um, now, four or five months later, Dan was right. Um, it, I think it speaks to nothing to worry about. It just it speaks to how they're going to use him. And that they see him as a guy, kind of like Chris Clemens later in his career, where um, he'll be best in a rotation, keeping him fresh, using situations, putting him out there, you know, 30% of the snaps, maybe 35. Uh, when he can, they can just turn him loose and he can do what he does best, get after the quarterback. Because um, they have so much depth and versatility in the rest of their roster with some of those other pass rushers. So they're going to have to be good on Sunday to help make up for the inexperience and the lack of depth in the secondary. And then obviously on the back end, Quandre Diggs is going to be good. And then another thing I'm going to be looking at is how how what's the plan for Jamal Adams this year? That's going to be really interesting to watch. We know he's a Seahawk now. 
for the next few years at least, maybe the rest of his career, right? Doesn't have to worry about his stability or or whether or not, he just doesn't have to worry about that stuff anymore. He can just focus on playing, and the Seahawks don't have to worry about that as well. Logic would suggest that they don't need to use him as much on blitzes and to get after the quarterback because they really had to do that out of necessity last year, especially the first half of the season when he racked up a lot of those sacks before they acquired Dunlap and some of those young players took a step forward, and that pass rush really improved in the second half of the season. Um, so we'll see. He's healthier now. Do they use him more in coverage? I know he got knocked for that the last year, but God, when your shoulder's out of socket and you have broken fingers on both hands, kind of tough to make a play on the ball. There were a lot of times he was in position, didn't make a play. That gets marked down on the PFF grade as a, as a missed play. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see. They're not going to just stop using him as a blitzer, although I suspect based on, on some things we saw the second half of last year, they may use him to torment the crap out of the Colts. Use him as a decoy a lot of times. But they can use, he and obviously Diggs, Pro Bowl free safety last year. Um, he's been taken care of now with some more guaranteed money. They shifted some things around. So he can play free and easy knowing he, he's protected for another year with some injury protection as well. Um, it's going to be an interesting matchup because we're not familiar with this opponent. So I uh, can't wait to see. Um. <laughs> Will they win? I always get asked this. You know, at work, everybody knows I'm I'm a fan and and a season ticket holder, and I do this podcast and everything. So they always ask me, "So you're going to win this week?" And of course, I'm an optimist. You know, uh, I usually look for reasons they will, and and usually believe they will, unless I think it's just an overwhelming disadvantage going up against a certain certain team. I'll just put it this way: we don't know. I mean, they they have to show up and play well. We don't know what the offense is going to look like. So it's a big question mark. This is, like I said, that's why I don't gamble. Um, I do think they're the better overall team. Colts have a really nice, interesting roster, like I said. And if Eric Fisher and Quentin Nelson were on the field, I'd feel a lot better about the Colts' chances. But the difference here is the quarterback, right? The difference here is Russell Wilson. And reports are that partially because of some of the off-season drama, but also because of the way things ended last year with the wildcard game, that he's more laser-focused than ever. And I'll tell you what, we'll see if that translates to his play on the field. Certainly has translated to his physique. Uh, this is a different Russell Wilson physically than we've seen in three years. Um, he's lean. I, I'm just really excited to see how he comes out if he embraces this offense and runs it the way it's intended, specifically in regards to getting rid of the ball when it should be thrown, I think it can be a dynamic offense. And the other thing I'll be looking for is how consistently aggressive is Shane Waldron? Because Seahawks offenses over the years under Pete Carroll have been often criticized for good reason, for just not keeping their foot on the gas relying too much on the defense to keep the game close, being conservative on offense to a fault sometimes. Uh, the, the NFL's changed. <laughs> it's about offense now. And slowing down the other team defensively, but, but scoring points consistently, keeping the pressure on. 
Pete Carroll says he's handing the reins to Shane Waldron, letting him do his thing to be autonomous and calling the plays. Then he'll give his influence once in a while. Hey, I think we should run here. Let's try that one play. But not as an overall uh, overseer of the offense as he has been from time to time. Um, so that'll be interesting. Will they keep the pressure on? Will they get off to a good start? Last year's uh, first half offense was great about that. But the year before, remember, they were just all three and out. Three and out, they had a real tough time getting started in games. And then that would lead to having to pull it out of the hat later. Um, I think that's the best case scenario for this team is that they consistently move the ball, that they're a threat every time they touch it. And that Shane Waldron understands how to use his personnel. That was one of my big criticisms of Brian Schottenheimer and, and, uh, and Daryl Bevel before him is... Just ignore some of the some of the options we have. I've always felt like the best offensive coordinators make it a point in the game plan every week to find a way to get touches for all their guys early on, get them engaged, and get the defense thinking about them. Uh, that didn't happen a lot the last couple of years. There'd be games that we wouldn't even see Tyler Lockett touch the football until the second half, fourth quarter. That can't happen this year. So those are things I'll be looking for. Um, it's it's key, man. It's it's a huge game for them to win. I won't. It's ridiculous to say any week one game is a must win, but this schedule is brutal, right? We talked about it when it came out. Only two of the first six games at home, but it's who they play. Indy's a playoff team from last year, playing in their place to open the season. Next week at home, the Titans. Titans are loaded. They're going to be tough. At Minnesota, Vikings might have as much continuity on offense as any team in the league. Kirk Cousins running the show. Justin Jefferson coming back for a second year. Adam Thielen is back. Dalvin Cook, obviously. And then you go 49ers, Rams. And then, so that's the first five. And then Steelers, don't know about them, right? Feels like they're going to take a step back in that division. Saints. Life after Drew Brees, that's a home game. Jaguars, talent, but young team. So these first five are key. And if you drop the first one to a quarterback that you've never lost to and a team that has some key injuries, um, that would be tough with what you have coming up. Um, if they can even just go three and two in these first five, I, th I think that would be acceptable. Not to everyone. I know there's some of you out there right now who are probably thinking, that's bullshit. Three and two. Fire Pete Carroll. Uh, but that would set them up well for the next next six are home. Two of the last three are at home. Go three and two at minimum these first five, and they got a chance, and that all starts this Sunday. It's a game they I can't say should win because, we again, we just don't know what they're going to look like. But it is a game that if they play well, they can and probably should win. Um, let me finish on this note. And, and I touched on it a little bit, you know, since we talked last, they took care of Dwayne Brown. They took care of Quandre Diggs, both in a similar manner. They were both in the last year of their deal, and they made him happy by converting some of their money, moving some of it up front so they get more now, and then adding a void year um, 
so that they have injury protection against next year. If either one of them were to suffer a devastating injury and they would miss the 2022 season, they would be financially taken care of. They allowed both players to, to hold in, right? Attend practice, but not suit up, not get on the field. They didn't ever allow that to become a distraction. Same thing with Jamal Adams when he was doing that. Even though there were reports there, especially near the end before the agreement came on his big extension, that there was discontent. And even some of the national media, Colin Coward, recently, there's players that don't like it there and they're discontented and they want... If the last couple of weeks haven't proven anything to you, it should prove to you that the Seahawks culture is as good as ever and it is alive and well and it is unique, it is unusual, it's a place players want to play to the point that they will go out of their way to be Seahawks. Because the organization understands how to strike that balance and how to walk that fine line of being tough. They got to a point with Jamal Adams, even though they offered to make him the highest paid safety in the league by a long shot, where they said, this is it. This is our final offer. Drew a line in the sand. Take it or leave it. And he took it. Fair deal for him, makes him a very rich man, but allows him to play in a place where he's going to enjoy the culture, enjoy how things happen on a day-to-day basis, and have a chance to win. Dwayne Brown, same thing. This is the third time he's come to an agreement with the Seahawks. Not, this isn't a new contract. But we've heard reports of what the Seahawks would like to do with him is go year to year. See how he's feeling. There's a really good chance that next year, if they don't feel like Stone Forsyth is ready to take over left tackle and they think Brown has another top 10 left tackle season left in him, they've they've set the stage for that possibility. And now because of the way they handled Quandre Diggs respectfully, tactfully, took care of his concerns for now, he's going to be a free agent in the offseason but there's a better chance now that he'll sign long-term. We've seen guys do this. We've seen they've been able to cut guys before knowing that other teams were going to attempt to sign them, but that, hey, we love you. We want you back. We just have to work on things. We have to do this right. The timing has to be right. And Carlos Dunlap's the best example of that. There were other suitors, other teams that wanted to add a really good veteran pass rusher to their their defense this offseason. He sat at home in free agency, turned all those offers down for a month while we all sat around thinking, what the hell's going on? Are they not going to bring him back? What are they going to do about the pass rush? He was sitting there the whole time knowing exactly what was going to happen. And he ended up back in Seattle at a contract that he was clearly happy with because it brought him back here and the team was happy with and allowed them to balance their payroll and uh, build that pass rush the way they wanted to. Um, it's, it's really spectacular. And f- for those of you who are on the uh, fire Pete Carroll train, which a lot of you were last year, especially after the, the playoff loss, right? 12 and four, still not good enough. You don't like the way he, he coaches. You don't like the, the raw, raw stuff, whatever. Uh, careful what you wish for because you never know who else you're going to get. You might have a list of coaches that you think are going to do a great job. Not many. This is a rare gift that he has. It's one of his strengths. Not many coaches are capable of building a culture like Pete Carroll has, um, and it's and it's really paying off uh, for the Seahawks. 
Let's talk about the Mariners now because they open a three-game homestand against Arizona tonight and then three against Boston Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, by the way, side note, I will be at the, the game Monday. I bought myself a bleacher ticket a couple weeks ago. Just targeted that as a game I wanted to go to to see the the the, uh, the series opener. Uh, I'll probably just be hanging out in the pen. If any of you are going to the game, give me a shout, shoot me a DM or whatever. Um and, uh, and say, hi, let's watch some baseball together. Um, what they have done this year is remarkable, right? Is there any doubting that? I mean, there's still a, a segment of Mariner fandom out there. It's a much smaller segment, I think, than it was in the offseason that um, is still pissed they didn't make a more impactful deadline move, didn't spend money last offseason, whatever. It's the damaged Mariner syndrome manifesting itself. They're 12 games over 500. They're 76 and 64 when most analysis, most media outlets, most baseball um, websites and entities had their projected win total in the mid-70s for the season. They're 76 and 64 and there's 20 games left. And that's with no Kyle Lewis for most of the season, no James Paxton for the whole season, no Justin Dunn for most of the season. He was pitching really well when he got hurt. No Justice Sheffield, who pitched poorly before he got hurt, but we were expecting him to be his, his 2020 self again. No LJ Newsom, who would have been really valuable and was, was pitching, doing a nice job as the fill-in starter there. No Jake Fraley for most of the season. When he's been healthy, he's been productive. No Shedlong, no Evan White. Those were guys at the beginning of the season when we looked at this roster, we were counting on. Like our preseason shows, we were talking, we spent a lot of time talking about. Evan White's got a hit, and he's going to be really important to this lineup. And, you know, this is the year Jake Fraley has to prove himself. And Shed Long, can he get healthy and be the everyday second baseman? And can Sheffield and Dunn take a step forward? And and uh, can Paxton anchor that, that rotation? And Kyle Lewis coming off a Rookie of the Year campaign. It's crazy they've been able to accomplish that. Um, and then it earned the extensions for Jerry DePoto and Scott Service. And Scott Service, just the other day, this is interesting got himself to 500 as a Mariner manager in his six years. That's crazy when you think about half of that time. They, more than half of it, really. Uh, well, no, three of the years. We're in a full rebuild. Um, he's, he's been pretty remarkable. The Mariners have put themselves in position to make this homestand important. Really important. Arizona is terrible. They're 45 and 95 coming into the game. I mean, that's crazy to think about it in terms of, you know, the Mariners are 12 games over 500. I'm doing air quotes if you're not watching this on the live stream. Uh, the Diamondbacks are 40 games under 500. That sounds crazy. I always thought that was weird. It's, it's really, technically, it's really 20 games under 500, right? They'd be 65 and 65 if they had won 20 more games. But that's the way we refer to that. They're in the hunt. They're tied with Baltimore for the lowest win total in baseball. They're in the hunt. They have a good shot at the number one overall draft pick. You have to make hay in that series, obviously. A sweep would be ideal, of course. you got to get at least two out of three. And then Boston coming to town. Here's where we stand right now as I record this. Midday on Friday, the 10th. Five and a half games back of Houston. Um, 
that's probably not attainable. Houston's just a better team. They're not going to stumble enough for us to make up that ground. Uh, although a little side note, I will say really gutsy win. And we may look back on it as a turning point of the season uh, for them to come back and win on Wednesday after that crushing loss Tuesday night, which kind of felt like after they blew that opportunity kind of felt like, Oh, maybe that was, that was the, the, the one that ended it to come back at 10 AM the next day and bounce back and kind of spank the Astros. Um, it's not, it wasn't a shocker because they've done that a number of times, but every time they do do it, it just further cements that, Hey, there's more to this team than run differential. There's more to this team than star power, marquee names. Um, so five and a half back at Houston, two games back of the Yankees for the second wild card, but three games behind the Red Sox for the first wild card, which give gets you the wild card game at home. Um, so, so that series is is obviously going to be massive because after that, pretty favorable for the Mariners. Three against Kansas City, seven against Oakland, three against the Angels. No more Houston. Kansas City's 63 and 77. You get three against them. Oakland is is really taking some hits injury wise. You know they're tied with the Mariners right now. They're five and five in their last ten. Not playing particularly well. And then the Angels are under five hundred and really haven't put any um, long stretches of success together this year. And and that starting rotation certainly is vulnerable. So massive series for the Mariners. Um, thought I would touch on a couple of things that are that are. A real hot topics on Twitter these days. Two big questions about the future of a couple of players. One is Yusei Kikuchi. The other one is Kyle Seager. Kikuchi has that unique contract. It was a kind of a two-way contract, a three-year deal that could become a seven-year deal if the Mariners exercise the option that would kick in um, this offseason. And I think he would average about $14.5 million a year over the next four years. First half of the season, no question. In fact, I think I said it. It's a no-brainer to, to extend him. All-star season. Um, was pitching like an ace. Scott Service even referred to that. Seemed like he'd kind of put it all together after a couple of years of transition coming over from Japan and then having to go through the pandemic year and all of that. Getting used to the bigger ball and the different workload. But this second half of the season, just not good enough. Not consistent enough. The velocity hasn't been there. That's a huge concern to the point that I think the answer is no, not at $14.5 million. Maybe both sides want to make something happen and they could negotiate a new contract. They would decline the option first, but then if there's enough goodwill that's been established and Kikuchi feels like this is the place for him and they want to have him back, but just not at that number, that could happen. Otherwise, that money could be spent better elsewhere. Now, your first thought is always, well, what are we going to do about the rotation then? And that's a great question, right? Because then you'd have, now you're looking at Marco Gonzalez, Logan Gilbert, Chris Flexen, and then a bunch of question marks. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. You can't count on prospects coming out and being ready for opening day. I do think at some point in 2022, 
George Kirby and Emerson Hancock are going to be are going to graduate just like Logan Gilbert and be part of that rotation. I also believe that the Mariners are going to make a significant addition to the starting rotation this offseason. And it'll probably come through trade rather than free agency because there isn't a lot out on the market. And, and the rate at which you have to overpay to get marquee starting pitcher free agents later in their career, especially if you're the Mariners, and all the usual suspects are pursuing them as well, the Yankees, Dodgers, Red Sox, et cetera, uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, if Max Scherzer wants to come play in Seattle and the number makes sense on a short-term deal, sure, you're going to pursue that. That's not likely. You can look at all the other usual suspects that you see in free agency every year, guys looking for bounce-back years, guys looking to take a step forward, guys coming off injury, buy low. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I think they're going to go after some significant names. Or maybe not significant names, might not even know the names. Significant pitchers. Younger guys with control years left that have number one ceiling and upside. Um, there were names being talked about around the trade deadline that DePoto checked into that weren't report weren't really rumored, didn't come out, nothing really came to fruition, obviously. What I you know what my understanding is they were framed as exploratory conversations, maybe setting the stage for the offseason. Um where I, there could be a trade that really blows the doors off and really opens our eyes this offseason for a younger starting pitcher. Um, that would require having to part with some of these guys that we've fallen in love with, some of these names that we've watched come up through the ranks as they've turned this farm system around from the worst in baseball to the best. But that's the cost of doing business, and it's a smart way of doing business. If you look at every other good team, you look at the, look at the Dodgers lineup and their starting rotation, and you'll see drafted by Dodgers, traded for, signed as free agent, drafted, traded, free agent. It's a mix. Uh, so I expect that. So it, we get so caught up in, in subtractions because it's a known quantity. It's what we can see with our own eyes. The unknown quantity is scary and uncertain, and so we usually dismiss it, Right? You see it all the time. Trades are made, and the minute you read about it on Twitter and you see the names and you don't recognize the names, your first reaction is, that trade sucks because I like that guy, and I don't know that guy. It's going to happen this offseason, maybe multiple times. And that leads me to the Kyle Seeger situation. Let me be clear. Kyle Seeger is my favorite player on the roster. Has been for years. I have his jersey. Love the guy. Would love for him to be Edgar Martinez, to finish out his career only playing in Seattle. It is not going to happen. That $15 million team option for 2022 will be declined and the Mariners will let him walk. And this is going to be one of the most... <laughs> substantive and, and dividing debates we've had as Mariner fans in a long time when that happens. Because he's so likable and he's producing. The way he's bounced back and res resurrected his career after that terrible 2018 season is remarkable. 
and then in particular what he's done this year and specifically in the second half of this year. He's carrying this team on most nights. And still playing a solid third base. Not a gold glover anymore, but very, very good. He rebuilt his body a couple years ago, so he should be able to play longer. I've talked on the show before about how he sacrificed on-base percentage for power, but that's okay in a good lineup. The reason that they have to let him go is because there are only so many opportunities on the roster to make upgrades. I, I had assumed from the beginning of the year that it was likely the Mariners weren't going to pick up his option next year. When they traded for Abraham Toro, it cemented it. And this point keeps getting missed when I see these debates. Abraham Toro was acquired to be the third baseman moving forward. Watch him play second base. It's admirable how he's been able to man it with all the work he's done with Perry Hill. He's not natural at it. He's not comfortable over there. His throwing motion isn't suited for it. Could he change that in the offseason, stick at second base? Sure. But if some of you out there are thinking, well, maybe Seager's changing their mind, I think I think this decision was made long ago, and they're going to stick to it. We've seen Jerry DePoto do that. When they make decisions, they, they make them based on analytical reasons, not emotional ones. And what's ironic to me is that so many of you are mad about this already because you know what's going to happen, or you can see the writing on the wall, or you just hear the chatter. And you're going to be so mad when it actually does happen. But a lot of you are the same people that have been so mad at the Mariners over the years for making moves out of nostalgia and emotion. Signing players that are washed up or over the hill. Bringing players back for another year when they didn't warrant it. Or when they do let a guy go, you screaming to the heavens that they shouldn't have. Uh, you can't have it both ways. you got to make good, smart baseball moves. Better to move on from a guy too early than too late. And, and Kyle Seager is already selling out for power. That's likely an indication that he's lost some bat speed. Put him sixth or seventh in a really good lineup. Put him on the Dodgers. Have him hit on the backside of the middle of the lineup. He can be a massive asset. But as your number three hitter on a team that's trying to make that transition and, and become a good lineup, it's um, it's not good enough. And, and the key is once you move Toro to third full-time, and I don't think anyone's going to argue with me now about whether Abraham Toro is a nice piece of this roster moving forward, right? We're past that. We're past all the trade deadline consternation, right? We've seen it. He's at 300 with Extra base power since coming to the Mariners. Very consistent as well. Switch hitter. Young. In his prime. Or not even in his prime yet. By moving him to third base, it, it gives you opportunities to make massively significant upgrades to second base. Because it's just easier to find guys that can play second. And there are more available this coming offseason um, than it is to play third. Some of you have suggested moving Ty France back there full-time. I've heard the team doesn't love him there on an everyday basis. I think he's your opening day first baseman next year. 
while Evan White works out his physical issues and proves beyond a shadow of a doubt in AAA that he's ready to come back up again and, and handle major league pitching and be more consistent at the plate. Um, and I think that's the move, and that's the plan. Toro's the third baseman. They see him as that. That's why they acquired him. If you were to exercise that option and commit $15 million to Seager and leave him at third base, leave Toro at second, you're weakening yourself there defensively. But also, in a year that you're looking to take a step forward and, and establish some of those young guys even more and add other pieces from the outside to it, um, I'm telling you, you don't want Seager's downfall to happen with the Mariners. Because when he's done, we've seen it before. When age affects a baseball player, as a hitter, it happens overnight. Personally, as a guy that loves Kyle Seager, I understand the baseball move part of it. I agree with it. And I hope he goes on and has a couple of great years somewhere else. Um, but it, I believe it's the right move. It's going to happen. Prepare yourself for it. My final point on that is this. Um if your retort to that then is, well, then we're going to suck because how do you replace his 35 home runs and 100 RBIs? They're not going to spend any money. Their payroll is $65 million. They're just going to subtract him from the lineup. <laughs> then you're not who I'm even having this debate with because you're not worthy of it. That's just... You've heard me say it before. I'll say it a million more times. If you're that cynical that you think that this current organization, based on all the evidence you see, that they're committed to, to building a winner and that they're going to take those steps and be different this offseason than they've been in a long time, then pick another sport. Because you're just, I, I don't know what you're doing. I really, really don't. Um, I want to finish on this. I've, I've kicked this around for a few weeks. Because I didn't really know how I wanted to address it. I've, I've had conversations on Twitter, some fairly heated ones uh, over the last few weeks, but I haven't really spoke out. I haven't said anything on this podcast about it. Those of you who know me, I say that a lot, don't I? Know that I'm a Washington State grad. And I'm a proud one. I literally wear my cougar fandom on my sleeve. It's, I have a tattoo right here on my shoulder. Um, I love my cougs. I don't love them because of what they do on the field. I know those of you, there's some of you listening right now going, you suck. I, it's not about that. Yeah, it's been hard. It's been hard to be a sports fan as a coug for sure. But I love that university. I love that town. And if I ever won the lottery, I would move to that town again full time. It was time for Mike Leach to go. What he did for the program was remarkable, admirable. I love him for it. Made us legitimate again and and but it was time for him to go. He'd worn out his welcome. Didn't love the way the guy conducted his business sometimes. 
And I certainly didn't like uh, the way he just some of his coaching decisions on the field. I, I thought um, as long as Mike Leach was the head coach of the Cougars that we would never beat the Huskies or at least a Jimmy Lake-led Husky team um, because he just kept slamming his head against the wall. He, he literally admitted he would never change the way he does anything against UW. And meanwhile, Jimmy Lake was saying the whole time that I know they're never going to change what they do, and we know exactly how to stop it, so we're just always going to beat them. And he was right. It was time for Leach to go. I thought we were in a good position to hire a successor. Facilities better than they've ever been on par with other Division I schools, Pac-12 schools. An outstanding athletic director in Pat Chun. An outstanding president. Uh, no one will ever replace the late Elson Floyd and be as great a Coug president as he was, but Kirk Schultz is, has really earned my respect. Thought they made a good hire in Nick Rolovich. I really did. I liked his history. I thought he was the kind of candidate that we could acquire someone at a, a smaller program, Division One, but you know, less prominent program that had success. I thought he brought with him, um, even though it was a different scheme, that same offensive mentality that, that's always been popular in Pullman and kind of necessary and able to recruit guys there um, to a rural school, you know, be wide open, be fun, but also was excited about his, um, his commitment to running the football uh, in contrast with Leach's philosophy, especially with Max Borgie there, who I believe is the best player in the Pac-12. Um, I met him. Went to one of those Marco Polo things where he was recruiting on the West Side his first month after he was hired, and he would put out a blast on Twitter, hey, come on down, I'm buying. Missed the first time, he did it again a week later. Was in bed. Hopped out of bed. Um, ran down to meet him in, at 11.30 at night. Had a nice conversation with him. Really liked him. And I remember at the time I told him, what I like about you and the first impression you've made is that you seem to really understand what it is to be a coog. To do this, to be out amongst the people and buy beers for us and shoot the shit and eat wings, get wings in your beard. <laughs> you know, I really liked him. He had a reputation as a player's coach, but also a disciplinarian. His guys graduated, got good grades. Universally, the hire was praised by people who cover the sport, other administrators, other coaches, players. Nick Rolovich has become an embarrassment to Washington State University. And I want to try to crystallize why I feel that way. It's not just because they lost to Utah State on Saturday. It has very little to do with that, although I'll touch on how that does play into it in a minute. He has absolutely zero respect for the position that he is privileged to hold. He's paid millions and millions of dollars. Three million a year, to be precise. To live in a place where you can buy a mansion 
for $500,000. I'm exaggerating, but not a lot. He had an opportunity to succeed because of all the progress that Mike Leach had made in turning that program around. Put him on the map. And he proved that early on by, by reeling in some really, really interesting recruits. He has a fan base that was willing to embrace him immediately. And one that will love you forever if you just treat them with respect. And that's where he's failed. He has stuck a big, giant middle finger in the air and directed it straight at the alumni base with how he's acted. Here's the point I want to make clear. This isn't vax versus anti-vax. His decision to not get vaccinated, put the team at risk, be the only coach in the Pac-12 not to get vaccinated, is one that I disagree with. I think someone in his position, a leader of men, a state employee, highest paid state employee, a research facility, um, should have gotten vaccinated the day it was available to him. That's what I believe. However, I also believe that people can make their own choices. So understand me that I'm not upset with Nick Rolovich just because he's not getting the shot. It's how he's handled the situation. There is a way to say, hey, I don't feel comfortable getting the vaccine. I have my own reasons. I hope you respect them. I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep myself and my team safe while also encouraging them to make the right choice so we can have a successful football year, not lose any games to forfeit, and we can move on from this and get through this horrible pandemic and everyone can be healthy. Uh, he's done the opposite of that. The He put out an initial statement that sounded kind of like that, but without talking to Chun, without talking to Schultz. And then it's what he's done since then. When asked reasonable, tactful questions by professional journalists, now that there's a state mandate that by October 4th, I believe, you have to have your first shot if you're a state employee. By October 18th, you have to have finished up. I think those are the dates. He keeps doing the Marshawn Lynch, I'm just here so I don't get fined thing. I'm going to follow the mandate. I'm going to follow the mandate. I'm going to follow the mandate. I appreciate the question. I'm going to follow the mandate. It's the tone in his voice. He's being a dick. <laughs> He's being a dick. He's being an asshole. I'm sorry. He doesn't have to be. And this is where I've, I've gotten into these debates. I was arguing with this guy a couple weeks ago on, on Twitter, and he was just, his point, he just kept saying the same thing over and over again. 
He doesn't have to get the vaccine if he doesn't want to. It's his choice. Why does he have? My point was, it's not what I'm saying. There's a way for him to answer the question with class, with tact, while still keeping intact his privacy and showing respect to the reporter asking the question and the fan base. There was a way for him to do that, and he didn't even try. In fact, he did the opposite. And there was a great column written um, last week. I forget the publication. I'm sorry. Uh, I shared it on Twitter and got some, got some blowback. I think it was USA Today. Basically, the point was, you can be a dick. You can be an asshole as a coach. But there are a couple of qualifiers to that. One, it doesn't work as well as it used to because this is a new generation of players. They want to be treated differently. They want to be treated with respect. They want to feel like they're closer to at your level rather than being a subordinate to you. And if you try to be too much of a disciplinarian and a 24-hour-a-day asshole, you're going to lose them. But also, you have to win a bunch of games. And you have to prove that you're really good at your job. First name of the possum. I'm not saying Nick Saban's an asshole. Sometimes he is. Sometimes He treats reporters like shit sometimes. And that offends me as someone with a journalism degree who went to one of the most esteemed journalism schools in the country. It offends me. But he can be a dick because he's won a jillion games and he's shown over time that he leads young men. And they leave the football program better than they entered it and they're connected for life. Let's call it equity. And Nick Rolovich doesn't have any equity. So, with all that, I think the reason I, I was afraid to speak out, sensitive topic, right? But I also thought, well, there, there's one way for him to get through this. He has to be really, really good at his job on the field. It's the only way. And I don't mean he had to go 11-0. and 0. But the players have to look like they're enjoying playing for him. Team has to be competitive. Fun to watch. And then he comes out Saturday. It wasn't that they lost. It was that it looked like he was coaching out of fear. One of my biggest pet peeves with, with football coaches, any coach is is not coaching with confidence, not putting your players in the best position to succeed, overthinking things. We talk about this a lot with Pete Carroll in fourth downs. You know, just line it up with Chris Carson and try and get that yard instead of being cute. So, Starting quarterback gets hurt. Jaden Delora comes in, makes a few things happen. They get down to the goal line late in the game. Key moment. They score there against a team like Utah State. They probably wrap it up at home. 
and he brings in the third string quarterback to run some kind of weird wishbone style triple option weird package fails they don't score they lose um it's not going to go well on the field this year it's going to put the program in a difficult spot they're going to have to fire in this offseason um We'll see what happens with this mandate deadline because he's all he has said is, I'm going to follow the mandate. Uh, that doesn't mean he's going to get the shot. It could mean that he's applying for medical or religious exemption, which he certainly doesn't seem like the religious type to me. Sorry. Um, but we wouldn't have to be sitting here having this discussion if he had handled the last six weeks better than he has. And it's so insulting to me as a coog that he thinks that he's so powerful and so great. He's forgotten already in a year and a half what a privilege it is to have that job. Um, and he's just every single day, he has the same message for Cougar Faithful, and that's uh, F you, I don't care. Um, so... Am I going to watch the games? Yeah. Am I going to hope they win? Yeah. If they get something going, right? It's only one loss. Maybe he has a chance to turn it around. If there's a sliver of hope, it's that he, for the first time in his tenure, sounded a little bit humble after the game, and he took it on himself. And he said, that was my fault. I take responsibility for it. It's the first time he's done that with anything since he's been hired. I suspect it might be the last. I don't hold a lot of optimism that Nick Rolovich is going to turn this around. And I only hope that he hasn't or doesn't do so much damage to the program between now and November when he's fired that Pat Chun can't go out and hire another quality man to lead young men and get the football program back on track. So in summing all that up, Go Cougs, but also F you, Nick Rolovich. <sighs> you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, all of them. Subscribe to whichever platform you use so that you are notified of new episodes. You can email me at emeraldcitysportscast at gmail.com. Follow me, of course, on Twitter, if you don't already, at Seahawks Forever. If you have a comment or a question, feel free to DM me. I'll get back to you as soon as I get it. Go to the Emerald City Sportscast YouTube page and hit that subscribe button so you know when live streams are beginning, just like this. And you can comment and ask questions live on the show also, and I can address them right away. Uh, enjoy this weekend, opening weekend in the NFL, Seahawks at Colts. Mariners and Red Sox kicks off Monday with the wild card on the line. Um, I didn't even get to my story about my experience last night, speaking of the Diamondbacks, with uh, Diamondbacks rookie pitcher Tyler Gilbert, who became the first player ever to pitch a no-hitter in his Major League debut earlier this season. Had an interesting conversation with him at work last night. It's pretty funny. We'll see how his start goes on Sunday as he pitches against Logan Gilbert, and then I'll share that with you next week. Lots to talk about next week, of course, wrapping up the Seahawks and that homestand with the Mariners. If you're at the game Monday, let me know. We can meet up, have a beer together. We'll see you then. Until then, remember, 
Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you are always right. I'm Dan Viennes. Thanks for listening.